Well, we've been talking about discerning power and uh, we've talked about justice. We've talked about preparedness in this last week and this week we're going to talk about discretion. Discretion, the power of discerning and the power of discretion. Discretion is a very important principle in a believer's life. A life of a believer is a life that is run and controlled by the discretion of the Holy Spirit, by the ability to be able to see situations about us and to walk wisely in those situations. Simple-mindedness is silliness or stupidness, blind to the circumstances that are pervade around us and, and unaware of what could be happening in the situation. So we, we often hear, this is a, a term that we hear a lot in our society, it's a little proverb that our society, discretion is better, better part of valour. Who's heard that before? Discretion is the better part of valour. Put your hand up if you've heard that say, statement before. Put your hand up if you've never heard that before. Well, I'm surprised because that's, if, you, if you just type that in and that's just all over, I remember, what it basically means is, is to avoid a dangerous situation is a whole lot better than confronting it. Valour is uh, bravery. Valour is the ability to be strong. And um, you hear some people say, I just wanted to prove that I was strong in some area of my life, so I placed myself in, in dire temptation. Uh, that's not a good thing. <laughs> the, the, the discretion would tell you, don't put yourself in that situation. Flee sins of youth, not go and see how close you can walk the line. You know, discretion is the better part of valour. Uh, you, you don't have to put yourself in a tempting situation. You have to keep yourself away from temptation. Lord, lead me not into temptation, the scripture says. So the word discretion means being circumspect, care, careful, carefulness, war, uh, walking with caution, wariness, a guardedness, a tact, a diplomacy, tactfulness, sensitivity, prudence, good sense, a lot of you like the word common sense. Common sense. You're all familiar with common sense. Common sense is discretion. Or not so common these days. Common sense, not so. Who said that? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Good to see you again. It's true. Common sense is not that common these days. Everybody is quite silly when it comes to. So, that we're talking about discretion. The, the Proverbs has a lot to say about discretion. And I only I've put a couple of verses in here because I, I think that if we overload you, we might miss the point. So a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. Everybody say that. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but a simple man pass on and are punished. So the idea of prudence or the idea of discretion or the idea of wisdom should indicate to us that we see something that's dangerous and we keep away from it. I remember when I was young... Um, we, I used to go roller skating at uh, Woolloongabba. And in Woolloongabba, when I was young, I was a teenager, I think around about 16, or, oh, no, I've been 17, I suppose, 16 or 17. I didn't have my licence, so I used to get my little tank top shirt on and my, my flares on, and I'd go down to Woolloongabba with my mates, and we would, there was a roller skating rink there, and we'd go round and round and get all hot and sweaty, and then the lights would go out, and you'd get a girl, and you'd go round and round on your roller skates with a girl, you know, that sort of nonsense that you go on. And, and it was always dangerous. Now, I, I, I didn't proclaim to be a Christian back then, although I raised in a Christian family, I didn't really take it on to myself to live that dynamic. And I remember one day sitting at a bus stop and seeing some guys coming who looked like they were very angry guys when they didn't have a shirt on, they had eagles tattooed over their chest, big, uh, well they weren't really big, I was bigger than them but that was a number of them and my friend, he looked at them and says I'm out of here, he foresees trouble coming and takes off and my other friend, he looks and he says yep I'm out of here too and he foresees trouble coming and takes off but I was never that bright. I always used to think, you know, I have a right to stand here. This is a free country. So I'll stay where I am. I'll take my stand in front of the... <laughs> Not so smart. So they would come up and, of course, you, you would, I was sitting on, the, on a park bench and I was minding my own business looking down at the ground. And they were walking past. And, of course, the first thing they say is... What are you looking at? And of course, I'm not looking at them. I'm looking at the ground. And I'm standing looking at the ground. And so they punched me in the head 
Now what are you looking at? I think, well, I'm looking at you now. So he punches me again. Don't look at me. So now I'm sitting there thinking, I wish I'd been smart. I wish I'd run away. But I thought, well, I'll get into the fetal position, cover up my eyes and my face and just take the beating. And so they, they really bashed me up. And I remember seeing out the corner of my hands, looking out there and thinking, you know, it doesn't really hurt when you get beaten up. The pain comes when you start to heal. It's too fast when it hits you. You're not wary, aware of the damages being done. You just know, oh, that, mm, 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 mm. there's the healing that usually hurts, you know, the next week, you know, as you, your eye goes back and stuff. So anyway, I eventually saw the bus coming, pushed them away and jumped on the bus so they didn't get time to finish me off. And of course, my friends got picked up at the nest bus stop and they hadn't been. So anyway, I got home. Well, next week's another story. You'll have to ask me later. Abigail was a woman in the the, uh, Old Testament who showed great discretion. I want to tell you a bit about Abigail's story. Abigail, you read about Abigail in 1 Samuel chapter 25, 1 to 44. So it's an old, a whole chapter of the of the of the Bible's devoted devoted to the story of Abigail and Nabal. Now I'm going to just tell you the story, and I'll let you know what's going on. You can go and read it and see all the details later. But it's it's a, it's a lovely little story. David and uh, his 600 men have been uh, travelling now into the land of Paran or the deserts of Paran, and they are looking after everybody that's there, King. Uh, Saul is still reigning. Samuel has just died and they've buried Samuel. So David and his 600 band of merry men are hanging around in the desert and the wilderness looking after everybody who's there. Uh, they're, not, they're not sort of vigilantes. They're not, not hurting anybody. In fact, Nabal is a very rich, rich and wealthy shepherd. He's got 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats and he's down in the valley and he's shearing his sheep. And David says to 10 of his fine young men, can you go down and see Nabal and talk to Nabal and ask Nabal for some goods and some stock? We've not hurt his, his flocks. We've not stolen any of his stuff. In fact, when people have come to attack his sheep and, and to steal his product away, we've actually guarded and protected the sheep. He says, so he's going to be kind to us and he's going to give us some, some goods and he's going to give us some food for our, for our band of merry men which is what they usually happen. This is, this is what went on, you know. David was like a shield or a wall around them. He was protective and they loved David and his 600 men being there because he was a protective force. He kept the bad people away and everybody was flourishing and everybody was, was enjoying the peace and the safety because David and his merry men were there. Well, Nabal, his name means fool. Now, I don't know whether he developed a bad attitude in life because his daddy called him fool when he started off in life and every time he talked to him, he talked to his foolish son and so his son had a really bad attitude. But when the 10 men from David's group came to have a talk to Nabal and Nabal was standing there, he was very, very harsh with them. In fact, he said, who's David that I know of? You know, I can't. And then he abused the four men and sent them away empty-handed. He was truly a fool. Because he returned evil for good. These guys had done him good and he returned evil to them for that. And when the ten men came back to David, David was kind of a little bit cross. He got a bit incensed by this whole situation. He looked at it and he said, you know what? I've guarded and I've protected his flocks. I've looked after him. Nobody's been able to hurt him. He's been flourishing and prospering because we've been here. He says, I would have thought he would have respected that and given us something to eat. And then he got incensed and he got angry and he wanted to take revenge. Now, that wasn't a really good for them. It was out of the character of David to do that. But he was just angry at Nabal. Foolishness on somebody else's part usually instigates within us a reaction. And David had a reaction. He said, slap on your swords, let's go down. Not one man will stay alive in that family. He was cross. So he left 200 people with, with all of his own gear and his wives and what have you. And he went down on his way to destroy every man and boy in Nabal's family. On his way, one of the... One of the sensible servants of the fool went back to Abigail. Now, Abigail was the wife of Nabal. The Bible tells us that Abigail was beautiful. 
She was very beautiful. She looked beautiful and she was very intelligent. In fact, the word Abigail means my father is joyous. So her father must have been very happy and she had a good upbringing and she was wise. She had great discretion. When she heard what had happened, she said, this man, this harsh-mouthed, mean-spirited husband of mine, he is an ad- he's just like his name is, he's a fool. And so she said, get, the, get some stuff together. And she pulled a great lot of resources together, and a whole lot of food, and a whole lot of wine, a whole lot of cakes of raisins and stuff, put it all together, send it towards David's camp now, get it out, get it going there now. Because the servant said, they're coming to kill us. They're coming to kill every man in this place because of this. And so she got busy straight away. She took off and she rode on her donkey and came to King David, who was not the king just yet, he was the king in waiting, came to him and got down and lay on her face in the dust and said, please, please, David, my husband's a fool. Don't do this. Don't get blood guilt on your hands. She identified the error of his ways. You will come to your kingship, she said, and you will have blood on your hands. You will regret this if you do this. Show some discretion in your action. And she was showing discretion in what she was doing, trying to save her family. And she was pleading for David to show some discretion as well. What a wonderful woman. What sense she had. What wisdom she paid. And she appealed to David's kingly heart. And David resisted the notion to, to do what he wanted to do and forgave the debt took the product home and let them live. So Abigail went back to her husband and went back to tell him all about it. And when she got back, he was in a drunken stupor. He was partying. He was having a great time. She couldn't even talk to him. He was just full of alcohol. So she waited till the morning. And when the morning light came, she she got to him and she said, do you realise what just happened? Do you realise what you did? And she told him the story of what was going to take place and what David was going to do. And when he heard the story in his sober mind, the Bible says his heart failed within him and he stopped. And he was like stone for 10 days. And then the Bible says the Lord struck him and took him and he died. Abigail was left without a husband, with a mighty property, And David went to her and says, Hey, Abby, how about you be my wife? And they got married and lived happily ever after (laughs) with all his other wives. So that's the story of Abigail. Discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you. It's really important to understand the value of discretion. Thinking ahead. Thinking about... What's happening? A single-minded person is a silly person, one easily persuaded and enticed, unskillful and stupid, foolish and immature and childish. And most of the trouble that we get into is because we don't think ahead. We don't give reasonable thought to what will happen next. We just get so full of ourselves and so full of the thing that we're feeling and so caught up with the emotion, the sensual stuff that's happening to us that we plummet ahead and then later on we deal with the nonsense. It's like uh, sin is like a beautiful package in front of us. We think, I want that package. I look at that. Look at that wrapping. Isn't it just wonderful? Oh, I just want to unwrap that package. It looks so exciting. Oh, look at it. It goes wing, zing, and bing. Oh, let's unpack the package. Well, wait a minute. This is, this is sinful. You know, this is a sinful package. You might not like what you get in the bag. I don't care. I just want to put my hands on the package. And we rip into the package. And the, the, the package is nice, but inside it's full of death and it's full of something that's going to hurt us really badly. And we have it now. It's our gift. The gift of sin is death. And we have to eat that up too. And then we have to come back before God and we have to lay ourselves before God and say, I, I did the thing that you didn't want me to do. I did the thing the Holy Spirit was telling me not to do. I disobeyed you. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? We have to go. That's all part of the package of sin. 
You just can't have this nice bit and not have the rest of it. If you want to come back, you've got to do the restoration. You've got to go back the whole thing. Simple-mindedness forgets that the whole deal comes with sin and just thinks, this is nice, I won't get caught. You will, you will get caught. Idioms that have to do with immaturity and uh, uh, an idiom is a way we say things in English and so probably somebody from a different culture won't understand this. So I'm going to give them to you so though if you are from a different culture or a different language, you'll start to understand some of our idioms. So here's a couple of idioms. Wet behind the ears. When, when you say that somebody is wet behind the ears, you mean they've just been born and the thing that hasn't dried yet is behind their ears. Usually when a calf is born on the country, you know, the last thing that dries out behind them is the, ear, the stuff behind the ears. The rest of the animal is dry, but just behind the ears, it's usually still wet. And so when you say wet behind the ears, you're meaning they're very immature. They don't show any discretion at all. So if you've never been in Australia before, and you've never heard that term before, and somebody says you sound like you're wet behind the ears, now you know what it means. They're saying you're very immature. Still wiping the milk from your face is another one. You're being breastfed. You're wiping the milk from your face. You're not very old yet. That would be the idea behind people who are immature or showing no discretion. Most sin can be attributed to your immaturity in God. You're still wet behind the ears. You're still wiping the milk from your face. You haven't learned some truth about resisting. You don't have to go a long way to learn those truths. You just have to be willing to obey God and trust him and do what he wants you to do. And you can have discretion straight away. In Proverbs chapter 7, we read a passage of scripture about a young man who had no discretion. And you might be able to feel this and you might even be in this situation yourself. It says in verse 6, for at the window of my house I looked through the, my lattice and I saw, a young, uh, saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding or discretion, passing along the street near her corner and he took the path to her house. He's talking about a young man who's going down toward a prostitute's house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black of the night, he's heading that way. Suddenly it's, he's going there and she's coming to find him. There's the lack of discretion. Well, if you know that there's danger in a certain part of town, the idea is don't go there. Unless you're called of God to go there with the word of gospel to preach to those who don't go there. There's nothing to be found there that you want. Oh, I just want to find, look for something. Don't go there. There's nothing but temptation waiting for you. If sin is deceiving you and luring you to go there, a simple young man travels down to the way and the bible says the bible says that you as an individual should take a path that is right take a different path so living with discretion is living in maturity acting wisely avoiding evil and offense that's what you'd be doing if you're living with discretion you'd look and you'd say i want to avoid evil I want to avoid offence. Now, sometimes you can't, in your righteous lifestyle, avoid offence. Your life will be offensive if you live brightly before people. They will be offended at the fact that you love Jesus. They'll be offended by the fact that you believe in a heaven and there's a hell. They'll be offended by the fact that you love, love the Lord your God with all your heart. They might, you can't stop the offence, but you can avoid the evil. You can be tactful and diplomatic and, and turn a thing around with the wisdom of God so you can take a difficult situation and, and, and not be so offensive to an individual. God will give you wisdom to do that. But, but discretion is seeing a situation for what it is and making right choices, taking right action at the right time. Taking right choices, taking right action at the right time. That's discretion. That's discretion. God wants us to be discreet. So what do you do in the day of trouble? What do you do in the day of trouble? Discretion says you hide yourself. Sometimes you can't afford the suffering, but discretion will call you to hide yourself in God. And there's lots and lots of scriptures that are in the word of God that tell us about God giving you protection and hiding you. In Psalm 27, and write these down if you've got your 
your, your sermon notes with you. Just write these down. You can look at them later. Psalm 27 verse 5 says, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. That's the statement that if you can't, in a time of trouble, if you show the discretion of following after God, say, God, hide me now in this time of trouble. He says, God will be your hide. He'll, he'll be your hidey ho. You can hide there and you can find a place of, uh, of protection in God. In Psalm 32 verse 7 it says, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. In Psalm 37 verse 39, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. Psalm 47, or 46 verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And Psalm 91 verse 15 says, When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and I'll honor him. And Naaman 1 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Now, when it comes to temptation, which is usually where we find ourselves in trouble, figure, when temptation sits on and starts to work on us to try and move us towards doing something that has a lack of discretion in it. The thing that really kicks on in it is all of your central nature is usually excited. That's when you know you're in serious trouble. When your flesh is speaking louder to you than your spirit. Who knows what I'm talking about? Who knows that feeling when your flesh speaks louder than your spirit? your hand up who doesn't know what I'm talking about never felt that before you're about to find out I think that's the place where we call out to God wisdom will tell you that if you find yourself in a tempting situation where your senses are fully excited to do the wrong thing wisdom would tell you irrespective of how you are feeling now do not trust your emotions. Do not trust what you're feeling. Call out to God right now and find help and protection in Him. If you start the day off with saying, Lord, I'm going to go into this terrible, sick and disgusting world and I'm going to be bombarded by many things that are going to try and lure me into sin. Lord Jesus, I want you to hide me in yourself today. Lord Jesus, I want you to be my refuge. I want you to be my strength. I want you to be a wall about me. I want you to be undergirding my feet. So I want the whole armour of God upon my life so that today when luring temptation comes my way, I can say no to the thing. I can resist and not get drawn into it. The difference between a person who is successful in God and one who is not successful in God is simply this. One is faithful to call out to God is the one who will be successful because God is faithful to save those who call out to him. Amen? We usually don't in those times of temptation exert the discretion. And if you're able to withdraw from a situation and pull out from a situation and say, you know what, this is all in the wrong, this is all wrong, this is, not, this is not what it should be and I'm out of here, then you want to thank God for the discretion he gives you by his Holy Spirit. Remember he says in Hebrews chapter 3, he says, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. Discretion is a living on the road with Jesus every minute of every day. Amen? So what do you do in the day of trouble? Well, the discreet person asks these questions. And it would be good for you to ask these questions in every situation you find yourself. Where am I? Now, one of the things that I learned when I was in art college as a young man, I went to art college because I was going to be an art teacher before God told me that that wasn't going to happen. Well, he told me beforehand I wasn't going to be an art teacher, but I wasn't listening. So I went to art college, you know, as you do. You shouldn't. And one of the things I learned in art college, because I believe you can learn something everywhere you are, is that you should observe how things are around you. One of the things they taught us in art college was to be walking observation 
beacons. Every time we look at something, we are observing. So you come into a room like this and you can observe the, the colour of the floor. You can observe the colour of the, 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 the chairs. You observe how they're set up. You observe, observe the, the design and what's on the roof. You, you, you're just taking things in all the way around you. You're looking and you're soaking it all in. Observation. To train you to do that, they'd put, they'd put white bottles on a white background on a white desk, you know, and, and you would you sit there for about an hour just staring at a white bottle set on a white background on a white desk. And then they would give you three primary colours, which are yellow, red and blue, and they'd say, paint the white bottles. They were testing how observant you were, whether you could really, were you present when you were looking at the shades of the white on the bottles? Could you see the hues of reflection from the room? Could you see the blues reflected in the white bottles? Could you see the reds being reflected in the bottles? Could you see things from around the room being reflected in the bottles? Were you observant of what was going on? And if your eye was observant, you'd be able to paint with the three bold colours, white bottles on a white background on a white table. Well, make it look like that anyway. The art of observation. Where am I? Now, we don't go through life just randomly existing. We're meant to go through life with a sense of purpose and a sense of understanding of who we are and where we are. We are to give serious attention to where we are and when we are there. We're meant to think about the situation we find ourselves in and recognize that God has placed us in that situation for a purpose and to reflect his purpose in and through that situation. So it doesn't matter if we find ourselves in a tempting situation. In a tempting situation, it's not uncommon. Did Jesus find himself in a tempting situation? Was it, was it difficult for him? But he knew why he was where he was. He knew why he was there. He was there to show you that you could put your confidence in him because he was untemptable. He was unable to fall because God cannot sin and you could put your trust in him. That in all temptation, if you put your trust in him and in the word of God, you would be resilient as he was. He knew where he was and he knew why he was there and he was about to show you in the midst of his temptation what it was to stand strong. And he did that so you and I could learn. Why do you face the situations you are facing? You go to work and it's difficult. People are slandering you. It's terrible. You're feeling upset. Is it because you need to get out of that place? Or is there a purpose for why you are there, where you are? Have you asked the question, where am I, God, and what do you want to do through my life here? Is there something that you want to reflect through my life so that others can see the glory of Jesus in my life? You pay attention to the fact that you're in a situation and you ask Jesus to help you to live the light out in that situation. Nothing just out there happens. You know, you. <laughs> well, I just went down to his place and I thought he would be home and he was there and his wife was out. And we had a cup of coffee and as we're having a cup of coffee, we're talking and it just happened. It didn't mean it to happen, it just happened. Nothing ever just happens. Turn to your neighbour and say, nothing ever just happens. (laughs) You'd like to believe it just happened, but it didn't just happen. It was a whole series of thoughts that went on. It was a whole series of decisions that you made. A whole series of blocking your ears to the Spirit of God. A whole series of, I'm not listening to what God is saying and I'm going to do the wrong thing. A whole series of choices and determinations to do the wrong thing. Nothing just happens. Sin is a meditation, a meditation to do something wrong and a willful construct to do it. Nothing ever just happens. 
So no matter what situation you find yourself, if you're asking Jesus and saying, Jesus, where am I? Where am I? What do you want me to do here, Jesus? And that's your breathing. That's the, that's the mode of your whole life. Where am I? What do you want me to do? I'm going through high school now. Where am I? What do you want me to do in high school? Where am I? I'm just getting an apprenticeship now. What do you want me to do? Where am I? I'm a businessman. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do now? Where am I? Then you'll be living a life of discretion. Letting Jesus show you the right actions to take at the right time in those situations. You'll be asking the question, whose am I? Turn to somebody and say, whose am I? Whose am I? Well, that's a big question. If I were to ask the question, whose am I? I'd have to think about all of those relationships where I have to give an account for my behaviour. Initially, I belong to this couple here. This is mum and dad. That's whose I am. I look like, I don't know, my dad, I suppose. Very handsome, like my mother, I don't know. That's whose I am. So my behaviour as an individual is going to be directly affecting my mum and dad. That's interesting, isn't it? That would be a very sobering thought if you were in a situation that your mum and dad were still alive and you were going to play the fool, wouldn't it? One day you'd have to stand before your mum and dad and say, Mum and dad, I paid the fool. The question, whose am I, is a good question. It sort of calms you down a little bit. Who else am I? Well, my, where's my wife here? She's probably listening to me. She's, there she is. Hello, darling. I'm my wife's husband. You can't see her. She's in the camera. She's in the, she's in the creation. She's, she's waving to me now. That's another question I've got. I belong to my wife. So I have to talk to my wife. But that, now I'm really killing it, aren't I? It's a good question. You really kill things. You really kill sin when you ask that question, whose am I? I also belong to my son and my two daughters. Now, that's a terrible, terrifying thing, isn't it? Now, to stand up for your son and your two daughters who you lived, tried to live righteously before all your life and then tell them that you've been a bad boy. Oh, that's a nasty one. How shamefaced is that? Now, you're getting the feel of this. It's a good question for discretion, isn't it? It's a good question to moderate your life. It's a good question when you start thinking about this thing. And I haven't even talked about the fact that God owns me. And that my only real choice in life is to obey him. And I have to go back to him and say, you know what? I completely disregarded your ownership of my life when I decided to do my own thing. That I am yours. That's whose I am. I've been bought with a price. I really don't have a choice. I have to obey you. If you want to be discreet in life, Ask yourself the question, where am I? What do you want me to do in this situation, Jesus? Who am I? Whose am I? And then you ask yourself, who am I? Who am I? And when you ask, who am I? You're asking the question about your core values. What do you truly believe? What is it that has given you your identity? What do you want people to know about you? Who are you? Are you this sort of person or are you this sort of person? Which one is your story? Which is your identity? You can make a choice about your, your story in life, you know? At the end of your life, they've got to read. I mean, this was saying that she's doing the reading through the Beatitudes, or not the Beatitudes, the begats, I suppose you'd call it. So-and-so had this son, and so-and-so had this son, and then so-and-so had this son, and then he had a son, and, it, and on it goes. And you see, you read through you know, generation after generation after generation in a, in a matter of a few moments, you know? Mm-hmm. And sometimes they make a little footnote, you know, like Peleg, at this time the earth was divided. They put a little... Who read that? Peleg, and at this time the earth was... Did you ever ask the question what that meant? Where was that? In Genesis somewhere, darling. At this time, they put a little footnote. Jabez. And they put a little footnote at Jabez and said, this is the prayer that Jabez prayed. Like, 
Others, they just gave their name and they had a son and that was it. But others, they had a footnote and they said a little bit about his life. You know, that's all you got to read about it. Jabez's prayer and what he prayed and how God, you know, at Peleg's time, the earth was divided and that was when it happened. And, that, uh, and that's all. You, if you got a footnote next to yours, what would it be? Started well and ended badly. Started well, dipped down, but finished brilliantly. What's the footnote on your life? You determine that. It's your identity. It's who you are. You can let somebody else write that for you if you like. The temptuous comes and tempts you into doing something really evil and you give up. Was easily led, simple-minded, led astray. But you, if you're asking that question and you want to have some sense of what is my life all about, you'd be able to answer that question. I am a man of God. I am born of the Spirit of Jesus. I am human and fleshly, but I am also spiritual and discreet. That's who I am. And you would want to answer that question about your life. Some of us, we just stumble through life letting whatever happens happen and try and pick up the pieces as we're going along. You can have that attitude if you like, but it's not the attitude that Jesus wants you to have in life. What Jesus wants you to do is to think clearly about where you are and be like Esther and know that you've been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this and make the right choices at the right time to do the right thing for God's glory. Amen? And you might ask the question, why am I? And recognize that the purposes of God are in your life because you're part of the church. And he said that through the church, he wants the manifold wisdom of God displayed to the principalities and powers. So that no matter who you are, you can give the devil a blood nose. It's true. The purposes of God are wound up in you, the church. You are part of the church. And when the temptation comes knocking on your door, you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that's part of the purpose of God. Amen? Now, turn to the person beside you and say, you can wake up, Mark. Mark's not screaming. You can wake up now. <laughs> Friends, listen to me. Discretion is an essential foundation stone for effective, victorious living. You save a lot of pain if you, if you show some level of discretion. The Bible says, watch out. It says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Now, dissipation talks about an overflowing of evil. And drunkenness is, of course, you know, drinking and that, getting drunk. And the cares of this life, and that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So we... We, we want you to have power to discern, so we want you to recognize the hour in which you're living. Now, this is the hour of the last days, we're told. And we're told to watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down, which means that there's a whole lot of work that's going on to actually distract you from the thing that God wants you to have your focus on. That Jesus is, is there with you and he's doing a whole lot of work, and if you keep your eye on him, it's okay. But there's a whole lot of noise out there in society, a whole lot of stuff going on that's there to distract you, to take you away from what God wants so he can cause you to sin. Remember, the devil knows that his days are limited. He knows that he's going to hell. He, he hates you with a vengeance, and he is working very hard to take as many people to hell with him as he can. They're not going to have a nice time with him, but he just is so destructive. He doesn't want you to turn to God. He doesn't want you to follow God. He wants to deceive you. And, and that's why the writer here says, watch yourself. If he says in, in uh, Matthew 24, he says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow, grow cold. You've got to know that it's going to get bad. It's not going, it's not going, you, you can't continue on doing the things you used to do when you were a kid. I, I mean, when I was a kid, it was pretty simple. You know, life was pretty simple. It was pretty bad, but it was pretty simple. It's a whole lot worse than that now. It's a whole lot worse than that it was when I was a teenager 
And you teenagers now, you can't play the games that we used to play. There's a whole lot of new games for you to play, a whole lot of new things to distract you, a whole lot of new worries to take you out. And if you keep your mind on the things of this world, you will be led astray. You will be overloaded with this stuff and you'll be weighed down and you'll find your heart is sick. And discretion would tell you, recognize the day in which you're living and understand the thing that you need to do to keep your focus at these times. You cannot play and run with the rest who run and play with the world and think that it will not bite you. It is designed to get you and to destroy you. Proverbs chapter 6 says, My son and my daughter, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart. Always tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. That's what you need. You need that dynamic with God so that he is continuously there all the time, directing your mind, directing your heart, directing your focus, directing your choices, directing your behavior. You cannot be dealing with life by yourself. You lack discretion if you think you can do it on your own. You will fail. This is not about you being you. It's about you being Jesus in this world. We live in these very, very dangerous times. And God doesn't change. I'm just reading through Exodus now. and Some of you may have been reading through Exodus if you're in front of your reading program. And I've got to the part where they've got to Mount Sinai, you know, and... God's presence has come down onto the top of the mountain and he's calling uh, the children of Israel to, to listen to him and he begins to tell them through the mouth of Moses the laws and the statutes of God and he tells them that he wants his fear to be upon them. He says, because the fear of God will lead you away from evil. <laughs> I mean, that one would have been a, a seriously scary thing to see. The whole top of a mountain exploded with flame, you know. And smoke billowing out. I mean, extremely scary. And the voice of God billowing and, and thunder and lightning. I mean, it would have been scary, scary stuff. I mean, not only had they been through the desert and walked through the desert to this place and God provided them with manna on the ground and quails when then the Moses strikes the rock and it opens up and it pours out for them. All these amazing things. And the Red Sea stands up on both sides to look at the aquarium on both sides, walk through and then, then bang, you know, Pharaoh's hordes are drowned. and the, This is extremely difficult for these. I don't understand why they, they lose sense. The pillar of fire at night time which hovers over the camp and lights the whole tent up. The pillar of cloud by day which goes in front of them. The angel of God going in front of them. They're, they're being led by God. They make a golden calf. At the bottom of a mountain? How discreet is that? But we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Don't think that they're any, they're any more foolish. Than we do the same thing, friend. In the presence of God, you know his presence, you know his spirit, you know his guidance, you're aware of his presence with you. And then when sin comes in, you make a golden calf and say, oh, I think I like that one. And God says, slap your hand. He says, the fear of God is there to help us. Now, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God makes us avoid evil. The fear of God is a good thing. Because the wrath of God is coming on evil. I mean, his grace is being poured out to you. And we heard from the prophetic words today, your pressure's in his side. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And he paid for your redemption. And he took the price of the punishment for you. And he's brought you to a place where you can escape the wrath. But he says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life and he who believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides. And I just want to get this idea of danger happening in your minds, okay? Playing with sin is very dangerous. 
You know, we live in a very dangerous world. The devil is out to kill us, to steal us and destroy from us. That's his intent. We know his intent. He wants to take us and kill us. And God's out to kill us too. That's comforting, isn't it? You don't like that idea? Well, he is out to kill you. God is, God is looking to kill you. He wants to kill your flesh. He wants you to kill it. He wants to kill it completely. You either get killed by the devil or you get killed by God. What's your options? I mean, if he kills you well, you can, you can kill the devil. But if he doesn't kill you well, the devil's going to kill you. I mean, in this society, you're going to die one way or another. You either die to, die to the sin of the flesh or you're going to die because of it. We're in a dangerous place. There is no safe place here. Your flesh cannot be safe where you live because God has designed to destroy it. He will not tolerate it. He will not have it. And he will take you through all the places he needs to take you to destroy it completely so that you can stand without the flesh before him in spirit and in truth. He will take you along some horrid paths so that you will learn not to listen to the flesh so that you will listen to the spirit every time. He will take you wandering around the wilderness like the children of Israel wandered around the wilderness until they learned to obey God and to listen to his voice and to follow him. We're living in dangerous times, extremely dangerous times. There is no path where it's not going to hurt. You just have to choose your suffering. Isn't that comforting for you this morning? That there's no place where you are not going to suffer, you just have to choose the way you suffer. Turn to your neighbor and say, be encouraged. Sufferings are coming. <laughs> I can't get you to laugh about that, can I? I kind of, I'm smiling on the inside about it because I know it's the truth. It's, it doesn't... <laughs> Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So if you ever decide to suppress the truth and follow in an unrighteous way, guess what? You're going to stand right up before God and God's going to say, You think you can fool with the truth? You think you can suppress the truth and believe a lie? Not that I'm going to get you. That's what he's saying there. He says, If you think that you're going to escape, you can't escape that. Romans chapter 2 verse 5 says, And because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And God will reveal his righteous judgment. If you don't listen to it, you are storing up wrath for yourself. You might... Do you really believe that? No. You don't want to believe that. But that's the truth. See, the way you're living now, what you're doing now, either stores up for judgment or reward. That's the way it goes. You either get rewards for your life because you're following Jesus or you get judgment because you are disregarding God and you're proving yourself to be rebellious and unsaved. Either way, either option, you are storing up for yourself something. Romans chapter 2 verse 8 says, But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, now ask yourself the question this week, how self-seeking have I been? <laughs> well, that's kind of horrible, isn't it? Because we're all a little bit selfish. We're all a little bit self-seeking. We're all making choices to have the biggest slice of the pie. We never really defer to somebody else. We all want to fill our plate up first. We're all a little bit self-seeking, and that's a bit worrying. You know, when I think about that, he says, you know, and then we all think, oh, can I can do a little bit of bad stuff on the side, and Jesus will forgive me. Should I sin that grace will abound? Yeah, I'm only an immature Christian. I can a little do a bit of sin now, and Jesus will grace. Will. You know, it's a bit of a problem. Would we have a big dose of God's fear that would help us to actually turn from evil and turn towards God and show some discretion in our lives when it comes to evil? They <laughs> keep away from it. It's not a good thing. It actually comes with a hook and with a hammer and it comes to hook us and bash us down if we don't listen to it 
Romans chapter 5 says, Since therefore you have been justified by his place, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. Thanks, Jesus, for the justification that comes. You know, If you're walking in the Spirit and walking with God and you're loving Jesus and His blood covers you, you know that you escape in the wrath that is to come. But the wrath is coming irrespective of what's happening. You can escape it, but you have to kill the flesh. Put to death, therefore, the flesh. You've got to choose the dying. Which do you want to die? What, what part? What in Hebrews chapter 4, he says this amazing verse in Hebrews chapter 4. And I'm just... Go back there. No. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 11 and 16, it says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. And he's talking about what the children of Israel did, you know? They came out of Egypt. God did all these amazing signs. He, he, he showed them his glory and his power. You know, he hardened Pharaoh's heart 10 times. So, well, actually 11 times. He hardens Pharaoh's heart, hardens Pharaoh's heart, and he says, so that the Egyptians will see that I'm great, that my name is great. He, he was really desirous that they understood that he was God, that there was no other gods beside him. He wanted to save the Egyptians. So he hardened Pharaoh's heart so he could up the ante and show his power. He continued to show his power. Ten plagues. And, and Pharaoh says, no, I'm out. Get him out. Get him out. So they all head up and they all head to the corner to an impossible situation. I love it. I started putting down on my side of my nose an impossible situation. God leads them to an impossible situation. I like that. It gives me some sort of comfort. God will lead me to an impossible situation. But it's not the end of the road. Sometimes we think the impossible situation is the end of the road. It's not. It's just the beginning of his power. And so Pharaoh looks for the 11th time and he says, they're just wandering around in the wilderness. They have no idea where they're going or no idea what they're doing. And he hardened his heart, got his troops together and started after them. And why did God do it? I want to show my name and my power is great so that the Egyptians will believe that I am he. And he opens up the Red Sea, blows an east wind, dries it all. And they walk through out of an impossible situation because God's got them. And Pharaoh runs in after them and God makes the wheels fall off the carriages and everything goes bad. And they say, let's run away because the God of the Hebrews is fighting for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Run. And their bodies washed up on the shore the next morning. You would have thought that the children of Israel would have taken some thought to that. But that was the first of the impossible situation. They come to a bitter, bitter well. There's hundreds of thousands of people wanting a drink and it's all they can't drink it. An impossible situation. Do you bring us out into the wilderness because there's not enough ground in, in Egypt to bury us? Is that what you've done, Moses? Forgetting, forgetting, forgetting that an impossible situation means that God is going to open up his glory. Moses throws in a, a, a branch from a... And it all goes sweet. And oh, they drink and oh, Mary and Alf, they go again. And then they complain. Another... Go through it and write down impossible situation every time there is one and see God come through. And does it, does it boggle your mind when you read in Hebrews chapter 4 that they were deceptive and they were disobedient so that when they got to the promised land and they were ready to go in and they listened to the... They showed no discretion and hardened their hearts to God after all he had done. No wisdom except for two, Joseph and Caleb, just two, out of all those men went into the promised land. Not even Moses, because he beat the rock rather than speak to the rock. Oh, but he beat the rock first, and God said to him a second time, speak to the rock. But he beat it. That was it. Look, one of the things I want to 
pray and leave with you here is the idea that everything that you do is done before a holy God and that you have to give an account to him and that his word will sort you out in the end and that it is discreet for you to run to him and plead for mercy and he makes that provision come to the throne of grace that you may find help in the day of trouble come he says come be discreet come to me now leave your sin and come and hide in me and I'll save you from the wrath to come don't keep on going and being silly about this because I'm going to bring judgment and judgment is going to be horrid Second Peter has this idea, and I'll just read these verses, and you can read it with me, and then I'll finish. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on just as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, God's word... By God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. They forget that God is also a creator and he was also the judge. Verse 7 says, But the same word, the present, uh, by the same word, the present heavens and earth were reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment. And destruction of the ungodly. Now that's coming. That's not here yet. It's coming. The day of destruction that's coming in the fire. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Don't get caught up by the amount of time. God lives in eternity and a day is like a thousand years for him and one thousand years he just passes for him like a day. And so don't get caught out about the idea that it's taking so long. You might go through another couple of genealogies yet before Jesus comes back, but it's going to happen in a twinkling of an eye and it will happen. You just think that one through. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, be, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish and everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will be like a thief. And the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth will, and everything done away and will be laid bare. And then he asks this very profound question and I want you to read it with me. Just follow the words and say the words with me. Since everything, ready, one, two, three. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's a very profound question. Let me, let me state that again. Because the destruction is coming and because God has said he who created all things will wrap it all up and because he is the God and judge of all the living and the dead and because he says it's going to wind up, I want you to say, what sort of people ought we be living like today? How should we then live? Very discreetly. Very discreetly. You should live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed it, it's coming. That's discretion for you. It looks, it says, that's bad, I'm not going to do that. It looks and says, I'm making a choice now for good, not for evil. It looks, I'm going to fear God more than I fear your rejection. I don't care what you think about me, what worries me is what God thinks about me. I'm going to live my life in the light of his gaze, not in the light of your gaze. I'm concerned about what he is thinking about my life, not what you are thinking about my life. I don't care anymore about what man is saying to me. I'm worried about God because in the end, I will stand before God. That's discretion. That's discretion. It thinks about what's coming. It makes right choices at the right time <laughs> that's the music as we're closing <laughs> you ought to live godly and holy lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt with heat but in keeping with his promise we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells amen isn't that the truth one day not very far from this day. It will be like a blink 
in human history. James says that your life is like a vapour. Come and it's gone. One day John was born. Now John is older. We looked at our lives, have travelled. My grandfather begat my father. He begat me and I begat my son. And my son begat his daughter and his future son. Hey, and we will all disappear. And very soon we will all be standing before the king. Standing before the king and you will give an account of everything that you've done. Now I don't want you to be frightened because that's not an account on whether you get saved or not. That's an account of what reward you will get. You want to keep your head together and be aware. So dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Amen? We're going to pray. If you feel like your flesh is your worst nightmare, put your hand up. We want to pray for you. I've got my hand up here. Okay, let's ask Jesus to deal with the flesh. Amen? Put your hand up if you want Jesus to help you to deal with the flesh. Father, you see those who've got their hands raised, Lord Jesus, and I ask, oh God, that you would give them strength this week. Give them eyes to see, hearts to know, Father, and a fear of God in their disposition, Father, that it would serve you with their lives and not their flesh. Give them strength in their spirit, Lord Jesus, today. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. Overflow them, Father, with strength from the inner man. Let your word abide within them, Father. And Lord Jesus, let your presence be greater within them than is in the world, Father. And Lord, let them be overcomers this week, we pray. Open their ears and their eyes to see and bring report to us, Father. And Lord, let us talk about how we can be watchful in this week. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 God bless you.